They're all here. The divas, princes, and living legends you should be obsessed with. Sitting down with me. I'm David Goldberg. These are the Luminaries. This time I'm joined by one of my favorite authors and theorists, the author Ramsey Fawaz, to talk about his book, The New Mutants, Superheroes and the Radical Imagination of American Comics. I hope you enjoy as much as I did. This already sounds better. So, Oh, good. I'm so glad. So, okay, let me just tell you, I can't remember how I discovered you, but I know that I went and saw you read at the Strand Bookstore, which oh, was already so awesome. four years ago. Yeah. And fatefully, that was the night that Chris Claremont was in attendance. I invited him. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, had, I, I wanted him to know that I wrote that book, and I reached out to his wife who's kind of his manager. Okay. And I was like, I just want, you know, I just want you and Chris to know that I wrote this book and that, you know, a lot of the case studies in the book are about things that he's written about. And I'm, you know, you can tell from the book, if you read it all the way through cover to cover, um, that uh, The New Mutants is my favorite comic book of all time. Yeah. And uh, that's why the seventh chapter is like the weirdest and the most unwieldy, <laughs> where I'm like doing this crazy thing where I'm just like, the new mutants is like a practice of radical feminist imagination and like, like who would ever make this connection? And I just was, I'm so deeply attached to that text and I think it's so smart. And I, um, I wanted him to know that I took really seriously what he was doing with indigeneity in that, because I think that it's very easy for people to read the new mutants and be like, he's just, um, he's just like doing, you know, brown face basically mm-hmm. right like and it's just and is is just manipulating native and indigenous culture and i don't think that that's what's happening at all i don't think it's like i don't think it's foolproof i don't think he's like a radical lefty indigenous right <laughs> you know what i mean but i think it's actually deeply moving and yes. really really smart and i think um i really wanted him to know that i took it seriously and i remember when they saw me give that talk at the strand and they saw me talk all about Jean Grey and Storm and my feminist read. She came up to me afterwards and she was like, that's literally what he had in mind when he was doing it. Like that is basically his, his thought process. And I was like, living, 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 honey. Yes. Um, yeah. I, you know, I have two straight older brothers. Actually, wait, can you press record on yours and then yeah. we can have this? I mean, I'm recording it on my phone, but this way. Yeah. <sighs> okay. So listen, I have two straight older brothers and like something that I really resent about um, the comic book canon and all canons is how like there are these like straight male bona fides that can't be debated under any circumstances. And um, when I went and saw you speak, what was so exciting for me, it it was one of the first times that I had seen a queer person be like, okay, these are actually the classics. And we're all in agreement about that, right? Because there was this this moment when you spoke where you were like, can we all agree that New Mutants is the most profound comic book ever made and Bill uh, Sienkiewicz's art is like the tea? And everyone was like, yes. And it was so nice that we didn't have to do this rigmarole where we all have to like jerk off while talking about Frank Miller and Alan Moore. Oh my Lord, I'm so over it. I mean, I actually, in the first draft of The New Mutants, I had like a screed against The Watchmen. Thank you. And how, how overstudied it is and uh, like in, in a field where like nothing is studied. Yes. Um, it's like, like Art Spiegelman's Mouse and The Watchmen and now like, you know, Be- Alice and Bechtel's Fun Home. It's like nobody can ever shut the fuck up about yes. these three texts. 
and I, um, they asked me to take it out because they're like, it's, it go, it's very, I'm just such a utopian, uh, you know, interpreter. And they're like, it's such a negative. They're like, you know, we don't, we don't want to hear what you're against. We want to hear what you're for. <laughs> but um, I feel that way. I mean, I agree with you. I'm just like, it's so boring. So yeah. Anyways, it, it really did send me on quite a journey. That's uh, awesome. That makes me so happy. That means so much to me. Yeah. I, uh, I've done two, they're kind of like, I guess I call them super culture memoir shows um, at the duplex wow. in New York. Yeah. And they've both had G well, one of them was more Buffy centered, but there's like oh, a huge awesome. dark Phoenix section and there's a huge demon bear saga section. I love that. Oh, demon bear <laughs> living for a demon bear moment. So I guess I want to start by asking you how you got to doing this. Like where, because obviously you come from the world of academia, but how you were able to, and I assume you've had a long spanning interest in these texts, but I'm curious about the moment when you were like, no, bitch, this is serious. And I have a lot to say. <laughs> you know, in, in many ways, I was given permission to take these things that I loved, uh, these comic books that I grew up with, but I was given permission to take them seriously by my mentor, Kathleen Moran. Uh, an extraordinary professor of American studies at UC Berkeley. And, um, you know, I've told this story many times, but uh, when I was growing up as like a, a, an, an immigrant gay teenager in Orange County, California, I discovered comics at this um, really powerful moment when I was experiencing like a very high level of bullying. I was feeling very alienated from myself and the world but I found so much uh, meaning in intellectual and academic life. And then also reading like fantasy novels. I was a kid who grew up reading like these 800 page fantasy epics and, you know, thinking that, you know, I, I was fascinated by these expansive um, world making projects of these different authors. And, um, you know, I accidentally came across the X-Men's 35th anniversary one day. And I was so deeply moved by these characters. It was, I often say when I tell this story, like, it was the first time I'd ever encountered an object of popular culture that I felt I directly identified with. Yes. But what was so odd to me was that none of the characters actually looked like me in any way <laughs> or were like me in any way. And so the identification practice that I experienced had nothing to do with similitude or sameness. Okay. It was about a feeling of like affinity. Like I was like, oh, like I would see Storm talking about the collective um, bond between the X-Men and I'd be like, oh, that's how I think about friendship, right? I wasn't like, I'm a black woman who can control the weather, you know? I was like, oh, I'm also somebody who thinks about friendship in this way. And so the richness and the thickness of the characters, right, like really gave me all of the space to identify. Of course, they were outcasts. I felt like an outcast, like blah, blah, blah. Like we all know about that kind of analogy, right, that we make. And, um, but there was something deeper about shared values and a shared sense of perspective that these characters provided. And that was deeply moving to me. So I spent years just reading comics. I mean, I, my collecting was weird. Like I didn't, I didn't collect comprehensively. I bought everything that seemed visually beautiful. And I used to buy two issues of comics and then I would cut one out and I would Amazing. do collages and like vision boards, you know, but when I was um, an undergraduate at UC Berkeley, I started studying popular culture. I became very close with Kathleen Moran, this mentor that I mentioned. And um, in my junior year, she asked me to be a TA 
like an undergraduate TA for this class she was teaching on consumer society. And that was really unusual to be an undergraduate and to be a teaching assistant, but she trusted me and I was very, very advanced in my scholarship and my thinking. And she wanted me to give a lecture one day and she said, I want you to just take a comic book that you love and I want you to think about it through the lens of consumer society and consumer theory. And I was like, oh, I'd never thought of that. And so I, I prepared this whole lecture about collecting, like comic book collecting and consumption. And she read it and she was like, this is so boring. This isn't what you do. You're an amazing interpreter of cultural texts. Like, I don't want you to do a history of collecting. I want you to read or interpret one comic book text that you love. And the first thing that came into my mind is I was like, the Dark Phoenix Saga is a story about consumerism because there's this woman who literally eats an entire star. Like that totally fascinated me. I'd never thought of it in that perspective, right? And so I went back and I reread the story and I was shocked to realize that like every element of the story is about class warfare, right? Like the villains of the Dark Phoenix Saga are these like multi-billionaire, um, Fur you know, dust, you know, yeah, like, yeah, like mercantilists. Like they're supposed to be like some like 18th century aristocracy. And um, there's constant dialogue in the story about consumerism. And it also was um, produced in the late 1970s during a horrific, you know, economic downturn with stagflation, you know, and and the environmental crisis. And I gave this talk and she was just like, this is what you should be doing. Right. So when I think about it now, the actual seed, like the first germinal idea for the New Mutants, because that turned out to be the sixth chapter of the book, right? About about consumerism and what I call Consumed now demonic possession. Yeah. Right. Um, and I put the de- uh, the the Dark Phoenix saga with with Spider Man's Venom saga, and I read them together. But that's amazing to me to think that that the idea for that came to me in 2007, right? And then the book was published like 10 years later. Amazing. So it was like, it was like, so, and then I went to graduate school and I studied so many different things, right? But I always had in my mind this idea that I wanted to, to write this full length, book length project on comics. And little by little, I built that out, like year after year after year. And so that's kind of like where I got the idea to work on those objects. So I want to talk about what you were saying about identification because I think. Listen, I'm treating this moment in time as a stopping kind of chrysalis point and we can look back on the last decade and we can like kind of move forward. So something that was very popular in the last decade was um, big intellectual properties adding, shoehorning in a queer character or a character of a certain background and then telling us we should be so thankful yeah. Um, and it usually, to me, rarely works because I often felt like the character, if you just add one gay character to the X-Men, like, okay, it, it yeah. didn't really do anything for me because, yeah, like, I, I, I feel the same with you. When I read the Uncanny X-Men, everyone is queer to me, and I understand yeah. that's more metaphorical than literal, but... Even last week, I don't know if you saw this, but or maybe it was this week. Our time is kind of whatever. Um, Marvel just introduced two new characters called Snowflake and Safe Space. 
who are joining the new really? Warriors. That's fascinating. One of the, their twins, Snowflake, is the first non-binary Marvel character. And they're supposed to be these sort of like meditations on uh, millennial Twitter culture, I guess, dot, dot, dot. Um, <laughs> and... I understand, like, I think it's a very valiant intention, but I think it kind of is missing the point. Um, and it's, it got me thinking a lot, you know, again, I'm taking us on kind of a long-winded no, tangent, okay. but I think you're going to get it. Like, I had this phone call with my dad a, about two months ago where he, he didn't, he was incredulous that I'm not, that I wasn't pro Buttigieg. Oh, um, yeah. And, and I had to explain to him, like, yeah, we're both gay, but our lives bear no resemblance to each other. Yeah. And, like, I think Marianne Williamson is a gay man. <laughs> yeah. Like, Marianne Williamson, to me, is, like, the hero of Fire Island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's really hard to explain that because it isn't literal, and we don't... I don't think we have the vocabulary yet to explain because it's still kind of, like gay, straight, you know, and what I love about your book and what I love that, especially in the New Mutants chapter, it suggests is this, like, it's more of this kind of, like, collaborative spectrum where it's obvious that we all have this thing that unites us, but it's maybe not so literalistic. What I loved in the New Mutants chapter is you're like, Yes, they are all mutants, but that's not really the thing. The thing is that they all have these different socioeconomic, ra- yes. uh, racial, and spiritual things, and they're all thrown together, and they all have to yes. kind of decide where they fit. So anyways, all those things, that's a huge, a lot to conflate, but I've just been thinking about that a lot. Yeah. When when I see the, this trend of like, oh, look, we've created a gay character. Yeah. It's our first polyamorous character. It's our first non-binary character. To me, it doesn't really do much unless the ethos of the entire work or the entire universe is everyone is gay. And I'm trying to figure you out- just- yeah. yeah. So you just named exactly like these are arguments that I've been making not only in the book, but also in more recent writing on superhero comic books and the problem of representational diversity. Right. We, right. Like we always what you're describing is the limit of identity politics. Right. The, the, what we are looking for when we try to build an entire politics or an entire way of, of relating to others in public through identity is we are saying the world is so chaotic and messy, we would like to identify one metric by which we can see other people who we should affiliate with. So if I'm black, if I'm gay, if I'm a woman, right, that category should provide me a stable ground upon which to create affiliation with other people. This is constantly overthrown by the reality that people are complex, right? (laughs) And that all of these categories mean so many different things to different people. Like the category of woman is like one of the most contested categories of all time. Right. Right. Like who belongs in the category of woman at some level, right? The question of what is a woman is like always up for grabs and always evolving and always changing. So the thing is, is like identity is not useless, but it's not everything. Right. Identity might be one place where we start to say like, 
There are socially imposed norms around particular identities, around what it means to be black, right? Like blackness is a socially is is a socially constructed identity based on racial subordination that many people who have been, you know, painted with that brush have also been able to inhabit it in unique, innovative uh, ways. Yeah. But the thing is, is that, again, what blackness means, not only to African-Americans, but to other people who feel affinity with the category, like it's so heterogeneous that we cannot rely ultimately on identities to be the basis for how we affiliate and connect, right? It's like every one of us knows people who share our identity as gay, as trans, as bi, as whatever, who we hate, who have terrible politics, right? Who have like, who are unethical or who simply disagree with us, right? Like, and, and we have to find other forms of affinity and connection. We also have to recognize that people can understand one another across identities. People can feel affiliation uh, like through cross-identification. So this is all to say that what cultural products have to do, like you, like you pointed out, is not merely represent many different kinds of identities. They have to actually produce a world in which those identities matter and have meaning and relate to one another. So one way to describe what you're saying, and I'm using the, the, the thinking of the political theorist Hannah Arendt, who I've been, I'm very, very attached to, is you're thinking not of an identity-based politics, but a world-centered politics. The idea about, like, we're more worried and interested in the common world that we share right. in all of our complex plurality than we are interested in any single one of those identities on its own. Right? Like gayness doesn't mean anything outside of a complex social world in which that category is taking shape in the messy kind of unfolding of life and sex and intimacy and connection and friendship and sociality. And so the problem with a lot of these moves is not that it doesn't matter that we should like represent people in their specificity. Like, of course, we should represent more gay people, more African Americans, more trans. Uh, and non-binary characters. But we should be concerned that if those characters are put into a creative world in which they have no value, they will mean nothing. So I remind people all the time, Marvel Comics, which used to be my favorite, one of my favorite cultural producers of all time, um, they have been obsessed with genocide and apocalypse narratives for at least five years. At least, I'd say, I'd say... 12. A long time. Yeah. I mean, at least since the 80s, right? Since um, since uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths became a thing for DC Comics, right? And one of the problems with these crisis events is that they rely on mass genocide, violence, and death as the driving engine of narrative. And so what they do is they introduce, they populate this creative world with all these amazing, complex, interesting characters. And then they, for entertainment value, they kill all of them. Right. It should trouble us immensely that Marvel Comics, which has claimed that it represents minority people and, and that it is like it, it is the superhero and like um, the multicultural superhero capital of American popular culture, makes billions of dollars by mass murdering mutants. Like that's horrific, right? And that says something about the bankruptcy of the creative or world making imagination of the people making those comics. And so in that sense, 
representational diversity means nothing right. in those situations. You know, they, like you said, they introduce characters in order to obliterate them. And so, you know, in my recent writing, I talk a lot about when we beg people to represent us rather than asking to co-collaboratively change the ethos of their world, we're essentially giving ourselves over to obliteration because we're saying my existence can only happen. I can only have a sense of a self or, or, or recognize myself if you represent me back to me. That's a, that's really dangerous. Um, and I, I, I push back at my students who feel desperate sometimes to be represented. And I'm like, be careful what you wish for, girl. Right. Because, you know, um, it's not that you can't be represented in a rich, complex way. But if you're begging people in deeply entrenched, oppressive systems, if you're begging mostly white, male, straight comic book creators to represent you accurately, I don't know. Like, you, you, this is very dangerous territory. I think there are other things that you can ask, and there are other ways in which you can ask to be involved in the creative process. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I just think at the end of the day, I believe that we should be using every strategy in our arsenal to tell stories about lots of different kinds of people, about the genuine heterogeneity of the world and representational diversity, like the increasing representation of actual minority characters is only one strategy of many. And the, the magnifying of that strategy to be the end-all be-all of creative life is a huge mistake. It will, it will backfire. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, I, um, you know, I was thinking, what would I say if I if I were to be at Marvel Studios and kind of give them a primer on gay people? What are they? The issue is, you know, I'm very rarely anymore the only queer person in the room. Yeah. You know, I work at a restaurant, everyone's gay, my roommate's gay, yeah, yeah, yeah. my social world, like everything. And the art I consume, the places I go. So when I would imagine, oh, great, one of the Marvel movies may have a gay character one day, that isn't really that aspirational for me because I haven't really yeah. been the lone gay person unless I'm yeah. with my family, which sucks. So why would that be fantastical for me, you yeah. know? But it's hard to explain that concept of like, no, I actually need like an abundant fantasy world. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, and, and I, I, know, I agree with what you're saying because I'm watching the new Star Trek series or I'm catching up now that I have time on Discovery. You mean Picard? No, Discovery. I haven't watched Picard yet. Is Picard oh, I love good? Discovery. Discovery okay. is amazing. Discovery is great to me. The best parts of Discovery, though, are when you have Sonequa Martin-Green and Michelle Yu together. Because oh my god, I know. Then you both, first of all, they're both so fucking fierce. But yeah, you have like Asian woman, middle aged, yeah. younger uh, black woman, 
and you yeah. get to have everything go you know you yeah. get the the wires get to start crossing things get to yeah when when it's only Sonequa Martin Green and a bunch of dudes, I'm obviously less excited because then it's like <laughs> yeah, back yeah, yeah, all yeah. on her again. But yeah. when you get to have that multiplicity at work, it's so like, oh my god, yeah, what's happening? Totally. Yeah, so it, it's it's kind of a it's it's hard to put this into words. And and the other thing that's that's been happening is like I write a lot about um, I write about and interview a lot of people in the like in the New York alt comedy scene, oh, which is yeah. largely queer. However, oh, there yeah. are many straight women in it who are like, we don't, I, there isn't vocabulary for what they are because it's like, yeah, they're straight women, but they're basically like faggots. <laughs> and no, I know you mean. And, and it's hard to, explain that because to me like there's no real boundary there's no borderline it's more of like a taste thing or an aesthetic thing but it's hard to explain that especially now that gay people are being like viewed through the larger cultural microscope i just think the terminology is changing and i also found you know marvel adding a non-binary character was hard because non-binary is like by definition non-binary is like indefinable so it's hard to have one non-binary character because it's yeah, going to be yeah, in, yeah, yeah. it's just what we know about what non-binary means is going to change i think in 5 years so to have Absolutely. one character it's like yeah uh, you know totally totally I kind of wish they had just said all the Morlocks are going to be non-binary or something. Or like, I mean, but they are in a sense. Exactly. <laughs> that's it. That's it. That's, but that's the, that's the thing that Marvel is failing at when they do this, is to realize that the creative world that was built in the 60s, 70s, and 80s is itself already unbelievably rich with complexity and heterogeneity. And rather than simply throwing in new characters that yes. represent kind of contemporary buzzwords, they could actually better flesh out all of those characters and complicate them and, and show them interacting with these complexities. You know, I've said this in a number of interviews, and so it's kind of become a cliche, but like an example of this is that, you know, when Matt Fraction took over the X-Men in the late 2010s, you know, one of the things that was such a missed opportunity was that he relocated the, the X-Men to San Francisco which many people were really moved by because they thought like, oh, he's making explicit the idea that mutation has affinity with gayness because he's moving them to like the gayest city in America, right? Like what's considered the gay Mecca. And he was was allowing for it to be cosmopolitan. Totally. And what was really, really a missed opportunity was in all the years that they were there, they never engaged in any sustained way with queer community. (laughs) They never address the homelessness situation. Right. They never talk about HIV AIDS, which is shocking. <laughs> that is such a central part of this um, city about like its long history of HIV activism, <laughs> of developing, you know, drugs and human health services for people with <laughs> HIV, you know. Um, and then they were presented basically as rich billionaires <laughs> buying up an island like off of the coast of California. And so they couldn't possibly seem like they were minorities. They were the 1%. And I think um, that was a deeply missed opportunity where actual, actually diverse characters that already exist 
in the history of the Marvel Universe could have been used to tell yeah. a story about the complex um, diversity of the San Francisco Bay Area. And like that never happened. And I think that that's too bad. That's um, really an, um, unfortunate. You know, the new Wonder Woman movie is set in the 80s. And I'm freaking out. I cannot wait. I can't wait either. But it is really interesting because I feel like part of the burden of being queer is uh, the older I get, the more I know about AIDS and the harder yeah. it is for me to like <laughs> be a part of this culture. That's so nostalgic for the eighties. I interviewed. I know. Yeah, it's that's crazy. That's a good point. That's really fair. And okay. I'm not saying Wonder Woman. I think the Wonder Woman being in the eighties no, will totally. be fabulous. The soundtrack's going to be divine. The hair's gonna be great. Yeah. But it is weird that like, it's hard to put the toothpaste back in the tube because for no, you to I go totally to the Marvel agree. offices and say, hey, listen, if you're doing this thing in San Francisco, maybe you want to think about this concurrent yeah, by the history. Way, no. And that's just, it's hard to, to... Yeah, you're asking people that, which which is what artists should have. You're asking people to have a historical imagination. Yeah. So like understand how a particular moment in time was lived differently by different people. <laughs> I think the 80s is particularly um, difficult because the way it's been redeemed is to be completely aestheticized. So like the way that we redeem the 80s is that we make it into a series of visual styles and musical styles. And we abstract the way the 80s looked and felt um, and it's uh, and it's it's kind of aesthetic from the actual historical conditions where that was coming out of. So it's like, you know, you can abstract um, women's shoulder pads, you know, to make it into this like really, really entertaining drag like yeah. high drama. But, you know, shoulder pads are also linked to the rise of the power elite right. in the 1980s, right? And to the incredible <clears throat> wealth disparity, bless you, Thank you, the incredible wealth disparity of that moment and the upward redistribution of resources so that like wearing shoulder pads was an expression of power. It was like almost like the fucking, you know, um, British court, you know? Like it's, it's, it's like going back to these kind of monarchical styles. And so I think that that's part of the danger, you know, of turning... Um, history into an aesthetic into a look or a style the same thing with the 70s right the styles of the 70s which became so popular over the last 20 years yeah they're abstracted from the actual historical moment which is one of the most radical political moments in the history of the u.s right right so much of the style that came out of the 70s was like a radical reaction against the conservatism of the long 50s and I think that um, that gets lost in translation when things become only aestheticized. I think that that's part of the danger. Yeah, I guess I'm curious what your thoughts are because another thing that I'm hoping gets kissed away in the last decade is I feel like cosplay culture, and not literally reduced just to cosplay, but when you brought up the 70s, I was like, wow, the amount of people at Coachella or Burning Man who've yeah. taken 70s culture, but in the most like wearing bourgeois a tunic, way. Uh, yeah, and like, yeah. And I, I feel like that I'm hoping is part of the last decade of this like play dress up, but I'm just curious. I don't know. I, I've been thinking a lot about like what I, where I think the culture is going. And I do feel like with this huge crisis, we're all kind of having to, I, I'm hoping that nostalgia is being killed. Oh, I mean, that would be lovely. I, you know, I think this moment is actually anarchic. 
yes. which is really, really amazing. I mean, I've been reading a lot of work. Um, I've been reading like anarchy manifestos. So I've been reading the Invisible Committee, and they're a French anarchist group that has written a series of manifestos, and one of them is called Now, and it's astonishing. And part of what they say is that, uh, you know, we have a perception of anarchy as being about disorder, like about being like smash the system and then right. like fuck it up and leave it. And they don't see anarchy that way at all. They think that anarchy basically describes every activity that one does against the existing dominant order and its forms of oppression. And so for them, anarchy is flight. It's about like the building is burning, get the fuck out of the building and like go somewhere else. And you're not running away from responsibility. You're running towards a genuine responsibility for collective life. And so their idea of flight is about like get out and flee somewhere else so that you can do something else, right? So they call this destitution, like the idea that, you know, every single one of the systems that is supposed to serve us has destituted us, has left us barren, right? So they say, you know, the, the law doles out injustice. The healthcare system makes us sicker. Education makes us dumber. You know, we all know that our governments are criminals. Why are we still here? Like, why are we still doing this, right? And of course, there's a lot of answers to that, which is like, we like our nice things, those of us who are like enough to be in the middle class, which is, you know, quickly eroding. Um, but, you know, I say all of this to say, no, I'm like, I lost my train of thought. What were you? Well, part of me is, you know, when you just describe that, a part of me is like, Oh, maybe that's the only identity definition in some ways that's going to matter because it's like. Oh, yeah, but exactly. Because actually the only thing that's going to matter is the decisions we make in the moment in response to what's unfolding. So this is what I was going to say. Sorry, I quickly lost that train of thought. Um, was that you were trying to say that you were trying to predict what's next in the culture. And the reason I went on this path around anarchy is that there's no such thing as predicting what's next. The world is unbelievably contingent. Like nobody predicted that Donald Trump was going to get elected. All of these conversations where people are like, is she electable? Is he electable? Who fucking cares? Yeah. Like that is so meaningless. A media event could happen a day before the election that could make someone unelectable. Okay. We have no idea what we can work with is the immediate thing that's in front of us. And I think we have such an unbelievably difficult time doing that. Because we're always working and we're always busy and we're all trying to keep up with the neoliberal economy and pay for our nice things and keep surviving and keep eating that we never have time to like sit and think about what we're doing. And the reality is that this suspension in time that the virus is causing might force some of us at least to think about what we are doing and like, why are we doing it this way? And why are we on this rat race? And why do we keep going into the burning building, right? Like, why is it? That like we already know that we have been destituted by this government, and every day, every one of us on across the whole political spectrum is like, when is the national government going to make a stand? <laughs> they're not. Like this is like they're not, and even when they do, they won't. Like th this is crazy making. So like at some level, we have to decide to organize differently, to think about collective life differently. And I think what we should be doing is not predicting what is next in the culture. We should create a new culture. 
Like we should find local immediate ways to start forming new kinds of connections with one another. And that will create something new that is unpredictable, that cannot be decided in advance. I don't know if this is reductive, but is this all it comes down to that being queer in this new century just means not being um, in line, towing the line with capitalism? Is that but all I think that, that this that's is? What queer has always been. Okay. In its most radical formation. I mean, queer as an invention of ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power in the 1980s, it was a refusal of, um, of the rise of gay normalcy, right? That like one of the reaction formations that some gay people had to the 70s, which was this very, very radical moment in which gayness, I mean, in the early 70s, the word gay in gay liberation meant something like what we think of as queer now. Right. It did not refer to simply a sexual orientation to same-sex desire. Right. It included that, but it referred to kind of a, like a taking flight away from the trajectory of heterosexual life um, goals, right? Right. Um, and I think in the 1980s, what happened was that gay increasingly became a solid identity formation with which a, a minority group began to assert its political rights with the democratic or liberal state using that category and saying, we are just like you. We're actually not as different as you have made us out to be. Right. Right. And I think, um, uh, the sociologist Deborah Gould says, right, this is the moment in which we have the rise of what's, what we call now gay pride. The idea of saying, like, we're gay, we're a minority, but we're proud, and we want to be respected. And I think that what ACT UP did in the face of the AIDS epidemic was to say, actually, fuck you and fuck off and fuck your identity. We don't want you. We don't have pride. We have rage. Right. right, We have rage that regardless of how we have presented ourselves, you have treated us like garbage. You wish we were dead. And if that's the case, then like we're not actually interested in any kind of respect that you would give us that is bankrupt and hollow. We want to overthrow the system and we want to make the parts of it that are still operational work for us. And so I think queer emerged out of a deeply radical anti-capitalist, you know, anti um like anti-medical industry, like against the medical industry's kind of top-down structure, it was a, a, a radically kind of socialist worldview that was what we would call intersectional, that was thinking about the multiple oppressions that were leading to the decimation of many different groups under HIV AIDS, like the height of the epidemic. So in many ways, I think to say that about queer now is to just try to revivify or revitalize the, the concept the reality is you can name a bunch of different terms, queer, trans, non-binary, and you could say that they're supposed to represent radical refusal of the order. But that would, that would only work in, in, in specific instances. There are a lot of people who say they're queer who don't do many radical things, right? Like all of these only have meaning in particular instances. Right. I guess I just, you know, when I think about the X-Men and then the yeah. New Mutants, like, I guess the reason that we feel so at home with them is there is that thing of what you're saying of 
we're going to build our own new society. We're going to build our own new family. We're going to build our own new constellation of totally. And this is the thing. Yeah, this is the thing about the X Men. It's precisely that it is um, a bond of trust built between outcasts who didn't just come together only because they're mutants, but because they also share values and they had to negotiate those values over time. And it was never apparent in the immediate moment that they were going to survive or that it was going to last or that they liked each other. Right. I mean, like one long ongoing conflict in the history of the X-Men is between Storm and, and Wolverine, like a deep, deep bond of friendship that goes back like 45, year, 50 years worth of comic book history where she fundamentally does not believe in violence even though she will engage in it to protect people. She doesn't believe in killing, right? And he says, you know, sometimes if you want to survive, you have to kill. And both of their positions make sense, and they're constantly in conflict. And part of their bond is that they they respect each other enough to hold those two things in place. But there have been historic moments when they uh, fell out, right? Even though they had a romantic relationship for a while, more recently, like they fall out with each other precisely because they disagree. And I think that that's part of the power of that story is that it goes beyond identity. Like identity matters, but like deep shared affinity and values is kind of what wins the day in that comic book. And same with, as you point out, uh, Moonstar and Magic, who are both traumatized. Oh, Uh, yeah. That's like, that's the bond. Like how do you have an indigenous woman who is like a member of the Cheyenne tribe becoming best friends with this like white blonde Russian girl, right? Who fled communist Russia. Who could be more different? (laughs) And yet they both have experienced dispossession. One of them of her land, one of them of her soul. Yeah. Right. Which itself can be a complex metaphor for other kinds of political dispossession. Like, you know, the massacres of Stalinist Russia. And I think that um, they find common cause, not on the basis of their identity, but of their experiences. Right. You know, I wanted you to know that, um, do you know about the Bushwig Festival in New York? I've heard of it, but I don't know too much about it. So it's like, to me, it's like the real gay pride. I think gay pride is like, not a thing here anymore but bushwick is like the real deal it's every because every single person like obviously you have the drag performers on stage it's like a two-day festival there's drag performances going on but the different the the divide between the performer and the audience gets so blurred because every single person is fantastical there's no one there who totally. looks like a civilian. And uh, I hosted this uh, like talk with some of the queens before Bushwig, and I read your piece about um, Uncanny X-Men when they go to space and aliens yeah. see the X-Men and call them totally. aliens. Because aliens. to me, like Bushwig, and like, which to me is like, you know, the zenith of contemporary queer life, there is that magical moment of every if every single person is different, then yeah. 
there is no like metric by which any of us is above anyone else. Like we are all. Totally. So I do believe it's possible. I do believe it's happening. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think that that's, I think it might happen just by default. I think all, I think we're entering a moment of complete groundlessness. Right, like we're we're completely losing a sense of any of the categories that we usually use to measure um, whether we're doing good or bad, whether we are succeeding or failing. All of the metrics that we use are going out the window. Yeah. Like a lot of like this is you know again to go back to Hannah Arendt, this famous political theorist. You know, in in the nineteen sixties, she wrote this amazing essay called. Um, personal or moral responsibility, no, personal responsibility under dictatorship. And she basically talks about like what happens that like preceding the moment of a complete political crisis or collapse of a society, you will always see an unraveling of the moral fabric of that society. And she says what you will usually see when that happens is the fact that people in a particular culture or society have attached themselves too much to a set of standards that they think are universal, and they've given themselves the false impression that those things will stand the test of time. So she points out that, like, you know, there was no lack of the idea of a moral code in Europe at the time of the rise of the Nazi regime. Part of that moral code was the idea that people should listen to authority and that authority meant something. And she's like, the commitment to that creed made people completely gullible right. to following the authority of the Nazi regime, when in fact, what their morality should have told them is, maybe that standard is false. Maybe that standard doesn't work everywhere. Maybe you shouldn't buy into false authority, right? Maybe you should respect authority only when it deserves to be respected. And so she says, when people measure their ethical compass on some kind of transcendent or universal value scheme rather than their own fucking judgment in the immediate moment, you will always get played because there will be other people who don't believe in those universal standards. And you'll be sitting here assuming like everybody believes you shouldn't kill people. But if you, it's like, if you aren't saying in the moment, we should not kill people, right? You're just relying on the idea that everyone agrees that you shouldn't kill people. She points out that like what happened in Nazi Germany was the fact that practically overnight, the supposedly universal Christian value of thou shalt not kill literally became thou shalt kill and that became the law of the land. Like it became literally the legal code that you should murder people. And the, the masses of German society were like, okay, I guess. <laughs> Right. And she's like, what's so crazy is that most of those people didn't actually want to kill people and didn't in their heart hate everyone. They just were like, well, I guess that's the new moral code, you know, because they were unwilling to make judgments in the moment. And this is the moment that we're living in now is that all of the seemingly universal standards by which we have measured what it means to do good what it means to do right in the society have completely fallen apart. Yes. And what are we all waiting for? The government to give us a new code? Tell us what to do. Tell us to stay in our homes. We don't need the government to know that we should stay away from people to protect the collective good. 
right? Like we don't need, we know what to do. It's just like, we're not doing it. Like that's, I mean, we are, a lot of people are, but we're like dragging our feet or we're whatever. And the reality is that making those decisions actually connects us with people more. We will be able to be more, we will be able to be closer with each other and more intimate and touch and hug more if we protect each other now. Like that's, we all know that, you know, but, um, but I think that, yes, like there are no universal codes. We have to judge in the moment. Like that's what has to happen. So I want to ask, um, if you can share what you're working on now or what you'd like to be working on next. Um, so I'm in the middle of writing my second book and, uh, it's a book called Queer Forms. And it's a study of the influence that the movements for women's and gay liberation had on American popular culture in the 1970s. So what I'm interested in is is looking at the ways in which, like, you know, in the early 1970s, we have this explosive rise of these two radical social movements, the, the movement for women's liberation, what we now call, like, radical feminism, um, which was made up of many different strands, right? Like black lesbian feminism and yeah. lesbian separatism and radical feminism and all these different socialist feminism, and then the gay liberation movement. These were deeply interwoven. They were both movements that were critiquing and trying to dismantle um, dominant structures around gender and sexual norms in this country. They were trying to create more flexible definitions of gender and sexuality to dismantle patriarchy, the system of domination of women, right? And they were often borrowing from each other's language, even though they often were at odds, right? Um, but, But I think they overlap far more than we think. What I'm interested in is how do you take new ideas about gender and sexual nonconformity and transmit them to mass audiences? How do you get large numbers of people to start to think and feel differently about gender and sexuality when they have been thinking and feeling about those things in such fixed ways for so long? So if you want people to believe that um, sexuality is fluid and open-ended, how do you transmit that idea? So part of what I say is like the way you do that is you create new forms. You invent new creative and imaginative ways of telling stories about gender and sexual non-conforming people and lives. So what I look at is how some of the key ideas that emerged out of those movements, like consciousness raising, coming out of the closet, lesbian separatism, among others, um, were formalized in American popular culture. Like how did people like artists, writers, and filmmakers give shape to those ideas? So for to give an example, I do a chapter on feminist consciousness raising, which was a political practice that was invented by radical feminists in which they argued that women should sit in a circle and talk to each other face to face about their experiences of sexual oppression and misogyny, right? And sexism. And one of the things they believed was that the practice, what you were doing essentially was pooling your experiences so that you could see that you and other people shared similar affinities. It was a way of basically like of deprogramming your mind. From, from forms of oppression collectively. So what I do in that chapter is I look at the movie, The Boys in the Band, 
this fascinating gay film, right? Like the first movie ever made about out gay men in the United States based on a famous Broadway musical in which a group of gay men who live in upper, uh, like on the Upper West Side of New York get together to celebrate a birthday party and then explode into a horrific fight for like two hours. The movie was historically despised by right. gay people who thought that it, it like presented all of these awful stereotypes about gay men as bitchy and judgmental. And what I argue, I try to recuperate the movie, which I think is genius. And I basically say the movie modeled, it formalized what it looked like to sit in a consciousness raising circle. Which, by the, the way, movie, decades later, Drag Race, it's now become a cliche that on every episode of Drag Race, there's a scene where all the girls are putting their makeup on and one of them talks about how their mom had cancer, how they survived yeah. sexual abuse, how they were bullied, yeah. something. And the other yeah. girls talk about it and then they all group hug and then we cut. It's it's totally. almost a cliche now, but that's so, like, it's such you an so right. obvious yes. part of, like, the way that we see what gay people do when they're all in a yeah. room together. And obviously what women do when they're all in a room together. Like, totally. Consciousness, and the way, now that I hear it from you, I'm like, oh, you can't, it's, it's everywhere now. Totally. And what consciousness raising was in its original moment was it began with the idea that you register your feelings about oppression as a kind of piece of information mm -hmm. that tells you something about what's happening. So, right, Sarah, Kathy Sarah Child, who wrote what is called now the Program for Con Feminist Consciousness Raising in 1968, she begins by saying, you know, there's a history of saying that women are hysterical and emotional and crazy and that we cry. And she's like, it's quite possible that women's hysteria is a reaction formation to being treated like garbage. So when you find yourself losing it, when you find yourself crying uncontrollably randomly, yes, like you might be struggling with mental health issues, but you might also be having those mental health issues as a response to what's happening. And so the point was not to say that all of your feelings are true, but that your feelings are a valid register of something that is happening to you. Right. And what if you started there, shared that with others, and then use that to develop a political consciousness about what is happening to all of us collectively. So the part of it that became cliche was that it became very much a process of group therapy in the United States. But it was meant to be the beginning of a process of political radicalization, where you go from your individual experiences and you become like committed to politically dismantling the systems that cause this. But part of what I want to argue is that in a movie like The Boys in the Band, you see the messy, they're not actually engaged in a consciousness raising session, but it looks like it. And so it gave form or shape to the circle, to the idea, right, that we could sit in a circle and pool our experiences. I find this so powerful that popular culture worked to transmit new ideas yeah. about gender and sexuality. And so I'm trying to tell the cultural prehistory of our current gender and sexual revolution. I'm trying to say to young queer and feminist radicals today, the movements for women's and gay liberation were not all racist. They were not all transphobic. They were incredibly complex. They tried to innovate new ways of thinking about gender and sexuality and then to transmit new ways of feeling mm. that are so relevant to us today. We have so much to learn for how much they succeeded. And to say that as attached as we are to the idea of fluidity 
and formlessness. Being endlessly fluid is why people commit suicide. Right. Being having no shape ever, having no sense of any ground upon which you create a sense of self is so disorganizing for people. And so what I want to say is, you know, we don't have to be endlessly fluid. We can be we can take form or shape and then we can shape change, shape shift, right? Like I want to go back and find all of these forms in popular culture that were so powerful and to say they don't mean everything. Every time we see someone represented who's trans or queer, it doesn't have to represent everyone. It's a provisional form that gives shape to this experience and then it will fail us and we'll produce another one and another one and another one. To me, that goes back to your writing about, you know, Storm and Jean Grey because you have Jean Grey as the girl on the team. She's not very interesting. Once you bring Storm in, you have this new dynamic. You have these, they can etch out these differences and they become really defined. So I love it. Um, Okay. So where can people be following you and, and hearing about this new work? Um, that's a really good question because I really haven't been using Twitter. Um, I mean, I have an Instagram account, uh, that is called nerd from the future. One (laughs) word. (laughs) I'm going in. Great. Yeah. And right now I'm really just posting pictures of things I'm reading. It's usually about fashion and culture and things like, uh, things I like, but I've just been posting things that I'm reading because I feel like that's one of the ways that I'm connecting with the world. You know, if you Google me, you'll find my um, my faculty page at UW-Madison. You know, all of my writing is up on a website called academia.edu. It's like the, for people in the know, it's like a Facebook for academics. Great. And so you can go to uh, my, you know, put my full name, Ramsey Fawaz, in at academia.edu, and you'll see all of my essays are available in PDF. That is. And then, of course, you know, you can buy my book. And, um, you know, I, again, if you Google me, I have a bunch of interviews online. I have a bunch of, and you can of course go to my, my official website, which is ramsayfawaz.com, but I haven't updated it in a little while and I should. Okay. Um, this was such a treat. This is an interview I've wanted to do for years and years and years. Thank you so, so thank much you. for having me. I'm yeah. so grateful. Especially under these circumstances, it was really a treat. I know. So thank you. It's pretty, yeah. Um, this is exactly the time that we should be thinking the hardest. I agree. Yeah, this is, we need to be um, dreaming what's to come when this is over. Because I think it's going to be fabulous. Um, (laughs) I'm glad we spoke and I hope uh, until the last time. Thank you. Let's be in touch. In solidarity. In solidarity. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode of The Luminaries, let me know. Give me a five-star rating on iTunes. Write a glowing encomium. Share it on your Instagram stories. Email it to your Aunt Joan. And help make this series bigger and better with every episode. Thank you for listening, and let's grow together. See you next Tuesday. Bye-bye.